Bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Seville, episode 13, Stories of Seville. It's actually going to be the very last episode in the series, or at least for now. And while thinking about how I wanted to end, it struck me that some of the very best-known characters from Seville are fictional. Interesting, I thought. Don Juan, for example. I've seen him described as the most famous civilian, despite the fact that he didn't actually exist. And if it's not Don Juan, then it's surely Carmen. So I thought today I'd have a look at the two of them, and also at some of the work of the writer Cervantes, who also spent at least ten years living in Seville. We'll have a look at the stories about what perhaps they tell us about Seville, and where in the city today you can find traces, which in fact it's possible to do for each of the three of them. Okay, so starting with Cervantes then, the Spanish author, very well known, who wrote in the Golden Age, the period when Seville was a boom town, foreigners were arriving in ships, much wealth was arriving in ships, some people were doing very well, there was a low-life element as well, of course. Cervantes himself had quite a dramatic early life. I think he always wanted to be a writer, but while he was busy wondering how to make that pay, he became a soldier, and he was captured, spent five years as a captive in Algiers, until eventually his parents managed to ransom him away, at which point he returned to Madrid, still hoping to write. Applying for other jobs too, though, he wrote to the king, for example, and asked whether he might be given a post in the Indies. A lot of people from Seville were being sent out there to be governors or in charge of this or that. I think he thought perhaps that would be the thing for him. Maybe he could see himself as some sort of expat writer. But unfortunately, he was turned down. The king wrote back and said something like, why don't you look for something which suits you over here? That letter, in fact, is still available to be seen. It's one of the documents held in the Archivo de Indias, which I talked about in a previous episode. Okay, so what next then for Cervantes? Well, in 1587, he appeared in Seville. He had got himself a job over here, as King Felipe had put it. He had become something called a commissioner of supplies which meant that his job was to persuade Andalusian villagers to hand over grain and oil and supplies in general so that he could collect them together for the king's ships. The king, of course, at this point, was plotting the Armada and busy building up his fleet for that. We know that Cervantes was imprisoned in Seville at least twice. don't think we're entirely sure what for. I've seen references to things like selling without permission. And we know, too, that he had major money worries. He fell into debt. He had problems paying his debts back, partly at least because his bank collapsed. So he had a certain measure of bad luck as well. And the long and the short of it was that after 10 years living there, he left and never came back. However, he did set some of his written work there. And it's certainly thought that he wrote quite a lot of it while he lived in the city, possibly even while he was in prison. I don't think anybody knows that for sure, but the building that used to be the prison is still standing and making the most of this because there's a plaque on the wall which reads as follows. Here he engendered, for the amazement and delight of the world, the ingenious nobleman Don Quixote de la Mancha. So there's no definite evidence either way to say that Cervantes did or didn't write Don Quixote when he was in Seville, but it's certainly true, I think, to say that in his writing you can see thinking of a man who knew what harsh conditions were like who's learnt lots about human nature, as indeed you would if you were thrown into a civilian jail in the late 16th or early 17th century. There's evidence, for example, 
that he knew all about the seamy side of New World explorations, namely slavery. And that becomes clear, for example, in a speech given to one Sancho Panza, who is Don Quixote's manservant. Sancho is trying to persuade his master to marry a lady whom he thinks might be the dispossessed princess of an African kingdom. And he's thinking, well, that's okay, but what about the fact that I would gain all these servants, also from an African country? What would I do about that? And Cervantes has Sancho Panza thinking aloud about what he would do about this and gives him words which just scream out really disdain for people who are willing to buy other human beings and just make money out of them. So here goes. This is Sancho Panza then. Who cares if my vassals are Negroes? All I have to do is ship them over here to Spain, sell them for hard cash, buy myself a title or some official position or other, and live at my ease for the rest of my days. By God, I'll shift them as a job lot or however I can. I'll soon turn them into yellow gold and white silver. Cervantes is surely commenting on the greed and the cynicism of the slave owners, whom he no doubt became aware of while he was living in Seville. And he uses sarcasm and irony at many points to show what he really thought of it. For example, in one of his works, he describes Seville as, quote, a shelter for the poor, refuge for the outcast, for in its vast expanse, not only can the humble find a place, but the great are unable to make their presence felt. That sounds unlikely, doesn't it? I'm sure the opposite was true, but that's what he wrote. There's a scene in Don Quixote where our hero meets some goat herds as he's walking along, and, as Cervantes puts it, they, quote, begged him to come with them to Seville, because it's just the place to find adventures. On every street and round every corner, they're simply waiting for you, more of them than anywhere in the world. When you know that was written by somebody who'd been thrown into prison twice, possibly for not doing very much, you certainly can realise that it's ironic. I quite enjoy the way, actually, Don Quixote responds to this information. Quote, Don Quixote thanked them for the information, and for their disposition to extend such courtesies to him, but said that for the time being he did not wish to go to Seville, and indeed could not go there until he had rid all those Sierras of foul robbers with which they were said to be infested. In view of his firm intentions, the travellers decided not to pester him any more. But you get the feeling, don't you, that those two goat herds are off to Seville, and that possibly the pavements aren't going to be paved with gold when they get there. This idea is drawn out as well in one of his short stories, something called Rinconete y Cortadillo, which are the names of the two ne'er-do-wells in the story who do manage to make it to Seville, and who are hoping very much that when they get there, they'll make their fortune. As soon as they arrive, they set about tricking and cheating their way to making money. A lot of the action takes place in the Arenal district, so the bit just by the ports, which I presume was exactly where you found all these people who were down on their luck and were trying to change their luck and cash in on some of the wealth that was arriving in the city from the New World. Cervantes describes the market there in the Arenal as being, quote, the place where they went every Thursday to ply their trade of thieving under cover of selling meat, fish, fruit and bread from baskets. It's not long before the two of them are recruited by a gangmaster so again, giving you an insight into the criminality in the area. He assigns them an area that they should work, stretching indeed from the Torre de Oro, so the gold tower, to the Alcazar. That's their patch on which they should be trying out their thieving and their card sharping and their various swindles, which are going to make them rich. In fact, the story does have a moral ending, because as the two men get to know better 
what it is they're being expected to do, they decide in the end that they don't want to join the bigger league criminals and they're going to go off and make their own way in some other fashion. But nevertheless, it does give a picture of the ill-doings in that area of Seville at that period. Even though that's the picture Cervantes painted of Seville, it's true to say that the city itself remains very proud of him. So in addition to the plaque I've already mentioned, the one on the building that was the prison, where they locked him up, there are in fact 17 plaques all across the city, which mark places that appear in his works or places that are connected with him. This is known as the Via Crucis Cervantino, so the Cervantes Way of the Cross. They were all put up over a 100 years ago in 1916 to mark the 300th anniversary of the death of Cervantes. I tried to establish a list. Where are all these 17 plaques? But in fact, this amount of sleuthing was beyond me and I haven't managed to find one. But I can tell you that some of them, for example, are near the cathedral. There's one right next to the Puerta del Perdón, so the Gate of Forgiveness. There's another one at the entry to the Patio de los Naranchos, and some of them quote one or two lines of his work. And what they do tell you is that the city of Seville remains very proud of this author, even though when he lived among them, they treated him really rather badly, and even though some of his writing, quite a lot of his writing in fact, satirises the goings-on in their city. So let's move on then to that wonderful character, Carmen, who's so tied up with the history and the culture of the city of Seville. So originally, the story was in fact not by a Spanish author, it was by the French author, Prosper Merimé, who published his story about her in 1845. But he certainly drew quite a character that got the attention of readers, not just in France, but all over Europe. And then, as we know with hindsight, became somebody who featured in other people's work as well. So it's quite interesting to start with a little extract from the Prosper Merimé story, which gives a thumbnail sketch of Carmen, showing her to be a mix of things really, possibly beautiful, certainly very feisty, confident, perhaps someone you wouldn't want to quarrel with, in short, quite a personality. So this is what Mary May wrote, quote, She was wearing a very short skirt, below which her white silk stockings, with more than one hole in them, and her dainty red Morocco shoes, fastened with flame-coloured ribbons, were clearly seen. She had thrown her mantilla back to show her shoulders, and a great bunch of acacia was thrust into her chemise. She had another acacia blossom in the corner of her mouth, and she walked along, swinging her hips like a filly from a Cordoba stud farm. So when the composer Bizet came across this, of course he couldn't resist taking that character and putting it into his opera, which was first performed in 1875, and which, as we all know now, became a global success. So the plot revolves around Carmen, a beautiful Gitana figure, gypsy girl. She works at the tobacco factory in Seville and she falls in love with Don José, who's a soldier. And he's so mad about her that he deserts his regiment for her. So there's passion right from the start. He wants to join her, so he goes to try and join her band of smugglers. That's not enough passion and intrigue for one opera. So then the next thing that happens is that Carmen falls in love with somebody else a Toreador, in fact, called Escamillo. And the culmination of the story takes place outside the bull ring in Seville. Escamillo is inside, defeating the bull, and Don José is outside, he's caught up with Carmen, and to take his vengeance for her betrayal of him, he stabs her to death. And then, very Spanish, very civilian, he runs into the bull ring and tells everybody what he's done and why. 
One of the many things that's odd about this story is the fact that, of course, it's fictional. And yet, right from when the opera was first performed, people began to come to Seville in droves to find Carmen. They seemed to actually really believe that she existed. I suppose they're the 19th century equivalent of those people who think characters on EastEnders are really alive and send them cards when they get married, etc. The opera was popular for lots of reasons. The rousing music for a start, the passionate story, and perhaps the fact that it had so many clichés about Seville, from the low-life taverns, to the bandits in their mountain lair, to the death and glory of the bullfights, to the passion and betrayal, one character for another. A cracking story. But of course, it remains true as well, that it's also based on, at least at the beginning, the real life of the girls who worked in the tobacco factory in Seville. It was known as the Antigua Fabrica de Tabacos, and Carmen worked there as a cigarera, so one of the cigarette girls. So the plot revolved around two places in the city that would have been very well known to everyone at the time, the tobacco factory and the bullring. And it does seem as if the girls who worked in the tobacco factory did have a certain reputation for feistiness, and that the people who were retelling their story did draw on that a little bit in Carmen, although, of course, they took it much further. The tobacco factory was visited in 1776 by Henry Swinburne, who wrote quite movingly about the tough tasks that the women who worked there had to do, preparing and rolling out tobacco leaf and turning it into cigars or cigarettes. We get a mixed picture of the girls who worked there from various writers who went to visit. So, for example, the French author Théodore Gautier went, and what he seemed to be taken with was the personality of the women there that he did seem to think was a little bit reminiscent of the treatment in Carmen. So he wrote the following. Most of them were young, and some were very pretty. The extreme carelessness of their dress enables us to appreciate their charms at ease. Some, with the swagger of a cavalry officer, had the stump of a cigar stuck resolutely in the corner of their mouths, while others, O oh muse come to my aid, were chewing away like old sailors, for they are allowed to use as much tobacco as they can consume on the premises. So there's a hint there that perhaps they weren't all in the full bloom of health, and this theme was picked up very much by a separate author, Willis Bexley, who published in 1875 a description of the inside of the factory, which really underlined the terrible conditions in which these women worked. In this pest house, he writes, the women smell as if they breathed the deadly malaria of the Pontine marshes and were becoming prematurely mummified, sallow, shrunken, shriveled specimens of humanity. Life seems to have but little hold upon the older of the operatives. So that certainly dispels the romantic myths that you would have if your knowledge of the inside of the tobacco factory came entirely from Carmen. All of that is long gone, but it's still a building that you can see today. It's up near the entrance to the Parque Maria Luisa, built in the 1750s, and it is, I believe, the largest building in the whole of Spain, apart from one, the Escorial near Madrid. So this one, 250 metres long, no less, is now part of Seville University. You can wander through, no one seems to mind that. You can pass under the entrance archway, on which you'll see busts of Columbus, who brought tobacco to Spain, of course, and Cortes, a fellow explorer, who is said to have been Europe's very first smoker. In its heyday, it was the largest employer in the entire country. 10,000 cigarreras, cigarette girls, were toiling there, producing cigars, cigarettes and snuff. It closed down in 1965, because the whole operation moved to a new factory, and it's now the Faculty of Law, Science, Philosophy and Literature. There's also a chapel on the site, 
with inside a very dramatic version of a weeping Virgin Mary dressed in black velvet and white lace. She's holding a rosary and she has a jewelled dagger plunged into her heart. So there again, a little bit of the drama that you get from the opera Carmen, but in a completely different context. I don't know whether it was by design. Anyway, what you can say is that Carmen is very much a figure for the city of Seville. And if you want to include her as part of your trip, then there are various things you can do. Visit the factory, of course, and think about the women who were employed there. Look out when you visit the art museum, the Museo Bellas Artes, for the huge Gonzalo Bilbao painting, which I think I mentioned in the episode on art, which shows a fictionalised version of the inside of the factory, but certainly gives an idea of the scale of it. Or you can go and see the statue of Carmen herself, which is where else outside the bullring, a large dramatic version of her, about which the writer Laurie Lee wrote, quote, She towers above me, her Spanish skirt swirling, her enigmatic gaze going right over my head. Or, of course, you could simply go to the opera and enjoy the story and get caught up in the passion and the intrigue. And perhaps remember that this ultimately tragic story is telling us, among other things, what happened to a young woman like Carmen who defied the conventions of her age and took not one lover but two and paid with her life for trying to follow her heart. So then, the other world-famous fictional character from Seville is, of course, Don Juan. He didn't exist in real life either, but he was so well-drawn that people also began to think that he too was a real person. He's been treated by a number of authors. It's another one of these characters who was so good in the original version that other people borrowed him and put him in their own works. So the original comes from a story written in 1620 by Juan Tirso de Molina, in which the lead character was Juan Don Juan. He wasn't very admirable, to say the least. He's forever evolving plans to trick unsuspecting heroines into bed. There's a scene exactly about that. Think ladders, windows, an intercepted love note, etc. And then listen to the arrogant man talking about himself. Quote, Seville loudly proclaims me a seducer, and the greatest pleasure that I could have is to seduce a woman and leave her without honour. Well, the ruinous cad, I hope it cheers you up to know that he leaves it too late to repent his wicked ways in this version of the play, and he gets his comeuppance at the end. So good. But people liked the character. Whether they wanted to be him or liked despising him, I cannot say, but certainly he was here to stay. So many other versions. There was a Molière version in 1665, and then that other classic French playwright Corneille had a go ten years later. He features, of course, in the Mozart opera, The Barber of Seville, dating from 1787, and in the Lord Byron poem from 1819-1820 or so. Different treatments in different works. So in the Molière version, for example, other people at least castigate Don Juan and make it clear that they think he's a terrible person. So, for example, there's a scene when his servant is talking about his master on stage to introduce him to the audience before they actually meet him, I think, and doesn't mince his words at all. This servant was played by the playwright Moliere himself in the original version of the play, and these are some of the words which he gave him to speak. Quote, In Don Juan, my master, you see the greatest villain the world has ever known, a maniac, a cur, a devil, a Turk, a heretic, who doesn't believe in heaven or hell or things that go bump in the night. A wedding doesn't mean a thing to him. It's the only sort of trap he sets for ensnaring women. He weds them left, right and centre, 
Ladies, their daughters, shopkeepers' wives, peasant girls, there's none too bold or shy for him. I'd rather serve the devil himself than Don Juan, but if any word of this ever came to his notice, I'd say you were lying. Right out of the 21st century, so he's happy to criticise his master in no uncertain terms, but he's making it clear that he doesn't want the master to know this, because obviously he relies for his job on pleasing him. There was a later Spanish version, published in 1844, by the writer José Zorillo. This is a slightly different take on the story, because in this version, Don Juan falls truly in love and saves his soul by repenting of his wicked ways. And this version was very popular with 19th century audiences. It's thought that they liked the themes of confession, forgiveness, redemption. For English speakers, I think the best-known version would be the one by Byron. By best-known, I don't actually mean I think many people have read it, and uh, that's no great surprise. I've discovered that it is 16,000 lines long, no less, and worse than that, it's not even finished. But I think most people know the character. Byron based his version on the famous womanising legend, but with a slightly different take, because in his version, poor Don Juan is seduced by endless women, rather than going around seducing them. That's not the only plot. There are lots of digressions for social comment, for Byron's insults of other poets and such like. But when he gets to the seduction scenes, he doesn't mince his words. The content's very racy, I'm told. I have to admit, I haven't read it either. I was reading somebody discussing why, although people have heard of the poem, they haven't read it. And they thought the reason might be that school is where most people read any poetry, if they're ever going to and the whole thing's a bit too racy to be using in school. Might interest you to know that Germaine Greer, no less, said she thinks Byron's Don Juan poem is, quote, the greatest comic poem in English. It's perhaps less of a surprise to know that on their website, the Byron Society are full of the idea of how good it is. Here's part of their rapturous comment, for example, quote, The verse has great energy, an endlessly clever rhyme, real characters and scenes, Jokes and ironies that are, except possibly for those that don't meet contemporary standards of correctness, as amusing today as they were two centuries ago. That leaves me wondering slightly how Byron and Don Juan are going to fare in the Me Too era. But anyway, again, as I said, I think there are people who are a little bit hazy as to whether he was a real person or a fictional character, and this is not helped by the fact that there is a statue of Don Juan in Santa Cruz in Seville, in the Plaza de Rifinadores, in fact and he's wearing the full kit, high leather boots, gloves, a draped cape over his shoulder, a statue which I saw somebody describe as being, quote, an image of an overly confident Lothario. I think it'd be true to say that he certainly doesn't look too repentant, at least in that version of himself. There's an inscription on the statue which reads, To Don Juan, in homage to his universal personality and the pride of his myth. So again, just as with Cervantes, this character may not put Seville in the best light, but because he's very well known, they're pleased to have a connection with him. And on a plaque beneath the statue, a few lines about Don Juan, which very much accentuate the brash version of him, the person who's going to do exactly what he likes and hang the consequences. So make of that what you will. But here's what they wrote. Quote, Here is Don Juan Tenorio, and there is no man his equal, from the haughty princess to the lowly fisherwoman, all women are fair prey, and he will undertake anything if it involves gold or valour. Let troublemakers seek him out. Let anyone who dares come forth to see if anyone can outsmart him in gambling, duelling, or making love. So there you have it. Possibly the citizen of Seville best known all over the world. 
described in a way that we may be thinking is going slowly out of fashion. I quite like what Jane Austen said about him, actually. She admitted that she found him very interesting, but summed him up as, quote, that compound of cruelty and lust. That does sound more like a description fit for the 21st century, does it not? OK, so that's it for Seville, very last episode of the series. So time to say goodbye to that lovely, beautiful, sunny southern Spanish city with its romantic Alcazar and its towering Giralda, majestic river, subtle blend of cultures and languages and stories and history. I hope I've inspired you to go or perhaps to go again and that you've enjoyed the virtual journey that we have been on together. Plans are already well in hand for the next series, which I can reveal is going to treat that city of light, of romance, of impressionism, of architectural grandeur, the one lonely Paris. So I hope you will come with me to see that too. But for the meanwhile, let's sign off once more in Spanish. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias. It's not appropriate to show off those phrases I so carefully learnt for until next week or until next time. And the only word fitting for signing off the final episode in Spanish is to say adios. <laughs>